Our Old Testament lesson is found in Exodus chapter 15. After delivering the people through the Red Sea, then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword and my hand shall destroy them. You blew with your winds, the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we come this morning, we confess that in us there is only darkness, but with you there is light. We confess that in us there is want and need, and with you there is true food. We confess that in us there is poverty, but with you and with your son there are riches. And so we come today to take hold of all that is ours in your son. Teach us and guide us and speak, Lord. For your servants are listening. Amen. Over the next few weeks, we will take a new series working through several different psalms to discuss the anatomy of the soul. John Calvin, the great Genevan reformer, wrote a commentary on the psalms. And in the introduction, he noted that the psalms were like an anatomy of the soul explaining all of our different parts and the emotions of the spiritual life. And so we'll take this cue and we will follow these experiences of the spiritual life. 
so many times here recorded for us in the Psalms. During the second half of the 18th century, the works of William Cooper dominated English poetry. This may be unfamiliar to you, but his influence was so immense that he was actually accredited with changing the course of English poetry, perhaps being the first romantic poet. He's also known, of course, for the hymns that he composed. And he worked closely with his friend John Newton, the Anglican minister who was a former slave trader, the author of the hymn Amazing Grace. In the midst of all of his popularity, though, Cooper also battled deeply with depression, with discouragement, with spiritual despair. In a letter to a friend, he once wrote these words. Listen carefully to the intensity of the language. It is with great unwillingness that I write, knowing that I can say nothing but what will distress you. I despair of everything, and my despair is perfect because it is founded on a persuasion that there is no effectual help for me, even in God. From four this morning till after seven, I lay meditating terrors, such terrors as no language can express, and as no heart I am sure but mine ever knew. My every finger ends tingled with it. An intense struggle with spiritual despair. In fact, at his funeral in May of 1800, John Newton was there, 74 years old, to minister to the family of his friend. Newton stands up, and surprisingly, he reads from Exodus chapter 3. It's verses 2 and 3. This is, of course, the account where Moses meets God in the burning bush. Somewhat stumped, everyone didn't understand why Newton chose this passage of Scripture. But after reading the passage, Newton says this from the pulpit. I know of no text in the whole book of God's word more suited to the case of my dear friend than that I have read. He was indeed a bush in flames for 27 years, but he was not consumed. And friends, it is this enigma this quandary that we encounter in the life of William Cooper, but even more profoundly in Psalm 77, a bush aflame, but yet not consumed. And friends, it's critical for us to discuss the reality of spiritual distress, of spiritual discouragement, of spiritual despair, not to sweep it under the rug, but recognizing that it is a reality of the Christian life. And fortunately, when we do, you're not left to your own devices. You're not left to your own imagination. You're not left to your own thoughts. But rather, what we find in Psalm 77 is God himself addresses the issue of spiritual despair and spiritual discouragement. And so it's important for us to ask and answer a simple question is what do we do with it? What do we do when we find ourselves in the grips of it? Do we ignore it? Do we act like it doesn't exist? Are we ashamed by it? 
what exactly do we do with those experiences of despair? Three things for us to explore today. We'll consider the predicament of despair. We'll consider our problem in despair. And then finally, God's response to despair. So let's consider each of those. First, as we consider the first nine verses of this psalm, we see in particular the predicament of despair. The psalmist begins in verse 1, crying out to God, seeking him in what he calls the day of trouble. The source of this trouble is not identified for us. It's not specified. But then what we have is an elaborate record in the first half of the psalm of the effects of this trouble. In verse 2, the psalmist says that his soul refuses to be comforted. The first effect we find is that there's a restlessness of heart. There's no comfort, no place to find refuge. In verse 3, he goes on to explain that he groans at the thought of God. His spirit faints when he meditates on God's way. It's hard for him to come before God. In verse 4, we find out that he's sleepless, that his eyes are open through the night, tossing and turning, finding no rest, weary, exhausted. And then in the second half of verse 4, we see that his crisis is so deep that he doesn't even have words to describe it or explain it. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. And perhaps you can identify with those concerns, a sleepless exhaustion, a weariness, fatigue of body and soul. And it would be nice if it stopped there, but the distress is not over. Exhausted and confused, the psalmist is also harassed by a series of questions. He's afflicted by questions, painful, honest, searching questions about God. In verses 7 through 9, we find a series of five questions. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises, God's promises, at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has God in anger shut up his compassion? The questions are deep and searching because they drive at the very heart of God at his character, who he has sworn to be in his covenant, and at God's promise, who he swears to be in his covenant. They drive at the steadfast love and mercy of God. Where is God? Will he act in accord with who he has said he is? These are the questions of the troubled heart in the dark night of the soul. Is God true to his word? Is God faithful to his promises? Has he forgotten to be gracious? And friends, our experience of life, our experience of life in a broken world fractured by sin, 
takes us into various circumstances and situations. And those circumstances and situations, despite all of our knowledge, despite all of our theology, can lead us to this type of despair and to this type of helpless, hopelessness. And it's important to be honest that there's no virtue in acting like it can't happen. And there's no virtue to be had in ignoring it. And there's no virtue to be had in shaming someone who finds themselves here in this place. This is the predicament of despair. And in our own frailty, in our own weakness, we can find ourselves in this kind of discouraged place, confused and exhausted, asking questions of God, not sure where he is. And so this is the predicament. But secondly, in these same nine verses, before the psalm turns in verse 10, we also see the problem, our particular problem in despair. These first nine verses express a complaint to God. He's crying out to God. He goes to the right place, even though it was painful for him to go. There's honesty. There's direct address. However, in that honest and direct address, there's one very pervasive reality. If you were to look in those first nine verses, you would find the first person repeatedly. You'll find the personal pronoun repeatedly. And the pervasive reality, the problem within our despair is the focus is drawn not to God, but the focus is on me. The focus is upon I. The focus is upon myself. The references to I and the personal pronouns flood this portion of the psalm. We'll see in a moment that they completely dissipate in the second half, is that they are drowned out by the God who works mighty wonders. But in the midst of despair, in the midst of discouragement, in the midst of all the pain of the circumstances, we hear very loudly the emphasis and the focus upon I. Recently, I was sitting with a retired pastor. He's a man mature and sober in theology and also has been diagnosed with a terminal disease. He shared that it was hard on his relationship with God that it's been difficult to see his future dreams taken away from him. Despite knowing all the truth about God, despite having taught and preached and counseled, he said it's difficult because now I must believe and I have to hold those same truths. And so in the conversation I asked him, how can I pray for you? His response was remarkable. I'm not sure I'll ever forget it. He said, Chuck, pray that I not be consumed with myself. He said, suffering has a tremendous power to induce me towards self-pity. Suffering and despair make you selfish. 
And friends, this is what Psalm 77 is indicating. That in the day of trouble, there is tremendous momentum to simply be absorbed by our own concerns. Me, my, myself, I. Repeated over and over in those first nine verses. And friends, this is the problem in despair is we are tempted and we are drawn into a self-preoccupation. And so the predicament is real. And then the problem is strong in the midst of all of our own frailty and our own weakness. And so what exactly is the response? Where does God lead us? To our third point, verses 10 through 20 our response to despair. Psalm is neatly arranged in two halves. The first half is the complaint, absorbed with the self, explaining the effects of the day of trouble. And then in verse 10, the psalm pivots almost without explanation, and we turn. It's never stated exactly how the two halves hang together. But the implication is clear. The second half shifts. In verse 10, then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. And friends, this is the moment where things begin to change. The focus moves from the self and from the preoccupation of despair and suffering and discouragement. And the focus moves to the right hand of the Most High. To the years of the right, to the to the years of him who is on high. And friends, of course, those years are without number. He's without beginning or end. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the one who is the same yesterday and today and tomorrow. He doesn't change. And so suddenly light has flooded the psalmist in the midst of the despair and the discouragement. And he appeals to this, to the eternal God, reigning above all things. And then in verses 11 and 12, not only does he appeal to the being of God who's stable and secure, he recalls the deeds of God, the wonders that he has worked for his people in the past. He exercises his memory. He exercises history to recall what God has done on behalf of his people. And then in verse 13, he considers the incomparability of this God. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? Who is great like him? No longer simply asking questions of God. Have you forgotten to be gracious? But interrogating himself with another question. Interrogating others with the same question. Who is great like him? Who works wonders? Who is mighty in his deeds? Who brings salvation? And all of this drives to verses 14 through 20, where the focus moves completely away from the self. And he focuses here upon God's covenant promises and then what God does on behalf of his covenant people. The experience here described, given in great detail, in verse 16 through 20, speaks of the exodus 
It harkens back to what we read from chapter 15 in the book of Exodus. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, they, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea. Your path through the great waters. Yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. And friends, it is this remembrance of the great act of deliverance at that point in the Bible's history. The deliverance from Egypt, out of the house of bondage, out of slavery, to the promised land. Being brought through the Red Sea, where they were collapsed in fear before the armies of Pharaoh. But God in faithfulness to his promise to Abraham, protected and preserved his people, and he delivers them. And it is this great act of deliverance that was recalled, was remembered, appealing to the years of God, which are without end, knowing that it is the same God who loves us today, who has worked all of this. And so, friends, in the middle of all despair, in the middle of depression and discouragement, when we can so easily lose our way, when exhaustion presses us, when we are afflicted and harassed by the questions of, God, where are you? We recall the mighty deeds of God. We recall that the one who worked those deeds is the same for us today. That he doesn't change. That his promises don't falter. That he doesn't forget. That he's not weak like us. And that he doesn't speak a lie. But this God has worked mighty wonders. He sent his son, our Lord Jesus, into the world. And our Lord Jesus has come and he's experienced all of our weakness, but he has done so without sin. And he offers himself in our place. And he climbs up the hill of Golgotha and he offers himself there as an atoning sacrifice for sin. But death couldn't hold him. He's raised from the dead, vindicated. And friends, when we place our faith in him, we are counted righteous with him. Not because of any achievement, not because of any accomplishment on our own, but simply because of what Jesus has done on our behalf. This is the mighty deed of God that fulfills all the Old Testament promises. And this is what we remember. This is what we rehearse, that when caught in that trap of despair, when caught in the depth of that discouragement. We return to those fundamental acts of history, those fundamental events of salvation. And the same God who sent our Lord Jesus into the world for you and for me, he is the same God today. So the psalmist has asked five questions. He's asked five questions Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has God's steadfast love ceased? Has God's promises come to an end? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has God in his anger closed off his compassion? And friends, it's through returning to the mighty deeds of God 
through returning to the God who doesn't change, meditating upon his ways in the world, meditating on who he is towards us in Jesus. That then the answer to those five questions is pressed back against us. That it comes back with an irrepressible force, like the wind that broke through the Red Sea and divided the waters, stacking them up on either side, driving them back, comes the voice of God that no, he will not spurn forever. That no, he's not ceased in his steadfast love. That no, his promises are not null and void. That no, he's not forgotten to be gracious. And that no, his anger has not terminated his compassion. This is not the way of God with you, his people. And that yes, our circumstances and experiences can be extraordinarily difficult in life. And we can be like a bush ablaze. But the promise of God is that he is always faithful to you. That you will not be consumed. That he does not forget you. That he does not fail you. That he has not shut up his compassion towards you. And so hear him today. Recall his wonderful deeds for you in Jesus. Recall the ways that that has played out in the midst of all of your circumstances. And know that this God will never leave you. Despite all of his sufferings, it's important also to remember, in the midst of those honest words that Cooper spoke, he was also not without comfort. A bush on fire, but not consumed. In the midst of his distress, he wrote a hymn. It's entitled, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. It's fascinating because the first verse of the hymn reflects his meditation on Psalm 77. Listen to the words. God moves in a mysterious way. His wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea. And he rides upon the storm. Deep and unfathomable minds of never failing skill. He treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. And so despite all of his pain, despite all of his exhaustion, despite his honesty and his own questions that he asked, Cooper knew. Because Cooper knew the secrets of the gospel. That the mighty deeds of God worked at the Red Sea were all fulfilled and pointed to the mighty deed of God in the gospel through our Lord Jesus Christ. And rising from the dead and conquering death. That this God is the one who tends to us. This God is forever faithful to us. That we are his and we are his irrevocably because we are his through Jesus And so, friends, in the midst of all despair, in the midst of all discouragement, ask your questions, but hear the resounding answer of the gospel, that God is for you. And he is for you because of our Lord Jesus and all that he has done. And so remember, recall, rehearse those great deeds of the Lord. Find yourself satisfied in him. Let's pray.
Father, we give thanks for the honesty of your scripture because we know it matches the anatomy of our own soul. We ask questions and through life's experiences and circumstances we often grow faint and weary. But you are the same God yesterday, today, and forever. And your promise is that you never leave us or forsake us. And so grant us today to hear your no, that you don't leave us, that you do not spurn us, that you have not forgotten to be gracious, that you have not left us. No matter our circumstances, you are always for us, for how will you deny us in your son? Write these truths of the gospel upon our hearts and grant us to meditate upon them, to turn fresh to you, to turn away from ourselves. Help us in our weakness, we pray in Jesus' name.